Gospel in the Bible, chapter 20. And read with me from uh, verses 11 through 15. Starting at verse 11. Starting at uh, verse uh, 11 there. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, Lord, we stand in awe of this passage. Uh, God, as we sit here and we read those words, I really pray that your spirit uh, would just uh, lay us there and lay us open as we read that. There's a really, really sober passage of the Bible. It's your inspired word. It's for our good and it's for our benefit today. So we ask Holy Spirit as we open up today uh, this teaching, this doctrine about uh, eternal suffering, eternal torment, hell. I pray that the Lord would do this with, uh, with sensitivity, uh, with compassion, and that Lord, you would do something in our own hearts today as we think about this in uh, ministering the gospel to those around about us. And Lord, we ask your help and your assistance now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're doing a short series of talks that will help us as we go about the mission of the gospel. And what we're trying to do is prepare ourselves to be able to help others to see the beauty and the greatness of who God is. And as that one Peter tells us, we are to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So we actually want to be preparing ourselves to understand and know our faith so we can actually tell people, as we in our church, connect people to Jesus and to grow people in Jesus, to see the goodness and the glory of Him, and to a living and loving relationship with Jesus. And it's understandable that people will have questions. The people will have doubts about Christianity. It's really important, I think, that we'll actually try and investigate them and try and help them see uh, what we believe about Christianity. They'll see some things about God and say, I'm just not sure about that. Is that really true when they see some of these things? And today we're going to deal with the, the questions and doubts there that people may have about hell. Now, even just the mention of that word, if we really grasped it, what's actually taking place there, it should send shivers up our spine as we think about this eternal predicament. It's not something that should just glaze over us lightly and be untouched by this. And unbelievers genuinely struggle with this idea and really struggle with this concept of, of uh, everlasting truth. They can see such a beautiful world, such an amazing world in so many ways, and they may think God is amazing in this picture of the world that they see, but at the same time, they can't connect the dots with this God who actually has created a place called hell. 
you reach the love of relationships, family and friends, even in marriage. And they long to love and be loved themselves in this way. And they may even see the love of God as it were demonstrated through those things. But when we mention that God has created a place called hell, where people experience eternal suffering and torment, it becomes like a wall of unbelief or a blockage for them. They just can't sort of see God and compute this sort of loving God with a place also called hell of everlasting torment and suffering. Um, there's many cults that are around the world today as well that actually step around this whole idea of being a place called hell or a place of everlasting torment or suffering. If you've done any investigations into the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't believe in hell. They actually take this annihilation. This annihilation, that means we cease to exist. So when your life finishes here on this earth, you just don't exist. You're not a conscious being whatsoever. You don't feel anything. You don't know anything. Now for them, when they believe that, it's like a company thought. And the company thought for them is, well, okay, I'm in paradise, but my unbelieving family or friends, well, okay, it's not so bad because they're not going to feel anything because they seem to exist or annihilate So it's comforting there at least, okay, well, they didn't make it a paradise, but they're not suffering. Cults believe that. It's taught around in many of them. Even some Christians believe this about hell as well, that, that God couldn't do this. There was a theologian called Clark Pinnock, and this is what he wrote uh, shortly before he died. He said this, Everlasting torment is intolerable from a moral point of view because it makes God into a bloodthirsty monster who maintains an everlasting Auschwitz for victims who he does not even allow to die. This is what the guy wrote shortly before he died. It's this concept here that doesn't fit easily with us. It's uncomfortable. It seems too extreme. It seems over the top. And it's really hard for us to sort of gather this and compute this in our mind about this loving God, but also at the same time this place called hell that he has created. Now, first thing I'll say here, it's really okay to have questions and doubts. Totally okay to have questions and doubts. And particularly so, I would much rather have questions and doubts from somebody I'm trying to share Jesus with than have no response at all. If someone just doesn't respond at all, I'm sort of, hmm, I'd rather have something. So it's good to have questions and doubts. So don't, don't, don't think of a person who actually wants these questions and wants these doubts. And it's really important at the same time that we treat these questions seriously as well. Don't just sort of let them blaze over and don't sort of think or respond to them like that. I mean, we want to show that our friends we care for them. And we want to hear what their thoughts are. And we want to do that by listening carefully to the questions that they would raise about hell or anything else. And this will mean also that we, we want to, as we carefully hear them, thoughtfully respond back to them as well. Because this will demonstrate that we're now listening to their questions and we're listening to the doubts that they're expressing at times. But if they've got questions and doubts about particularly this issue, I think what's really happening in their mind, it's not so much that they um, got questions about hell, but I think their questions are really underlying about the justice of God. About how um, how complete this justice of God is, how um, sort of undoing this justice of God is. That's that's the real picture there. They're struggling with this complete and pure nature of a just 
God. And they're struggling with it also from an incomplete picture of who God is. But our friends obviously haven't got this clarity of view of who God is. So they struggle trying to comprehend God's justice because they can't clearly see who God is in this response. They can't see how good and right God's justice is in these terms. God is just. He is just. And we see in our text here that we look at today a very dramatic scene. A very dramatic scene. It really doesn't get much more awesome than this, what we just read through there in verses 11 to 15. What do we see then? We see this great white throne. Right off the top of it is this great white throne, there's someone sitting upon this throne. Now, if we could just get a vision of that, I think it would take our breath away. We're told there uh, that the earth and sky have fled away from the presence of this one who's sitting upon the throne. It's more inspiring when you actually just stop and just take that in and think about it. It's a real picture here of survival. It just actually just sobers you up. stops you in your tracks when you just read through that passage really slowly and really carefully. Uh, I was in a court case myself once as a witness to, uh, to testify a court case a couple of years ago. And uh, it's a nerve-wracking scene. You're actually outside and you can't come in until your court come in. And the, um, the police guy with the bus come out and said, hey, this is what's going to happen. And then you walk into the scene there's a judge up there and there's some barriers there and it's a real scene. This is a real authority place. This is just this is deadly sickness. So it just sort of strikes you. And that's only just a glimpse of what this great white throne and this judgment is. It's an awe-inspiring sight. And what this picture here that we see in this passage communicates to us that God is the final judge of all people of all time. God is the judge of all the earth. That's what we're seeing here in this picture of uh, this great white throne and one sitting upon it. And we see there in that passage there's books. And it says that the books are open. And in these books are the deeds of every single human being uh, done by them. Recorded in these books. And they'll be writing back in John's day, which is 2,000 years ago. It probably could be a hard drive and a computer, which doesn't matter. Whatever's done is recorded somewhere. It could be a whole lot of books or it could be a massive big hard drive. But everything ever done, nothing's missing. Every thought, every word, every action is recorded in these books. Nothing is missing. And these books are open. They're there for everybody to see what's happened in these lives. It's a picture of God as a just God, a God of justice. If you drop down to 15 here, you'll see where this is heading uh, as these books have been gone through. Drop down to verse 15, it says this. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Think about that. If anyone's name is not found in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. Perhaps, perhaps the scariest verse in the Bible. If we just stop and think about it. See, John, the writer of Revelation, is talking about hell. He's talking about hell. 
If anyone's name is not written in the book of life, they are thrown into the lake of fire. <laughs> and so this is this is where the issue comes up where we struggle. Oh, this is so massive. This is so big. This is so huge. Is that really true? Well, here's some thoughts here regarding uh, this place called hell as we're referring to now in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, Jesus actually spoke more about hell than he did heaven in his history. Heaven is a glorious place because of God's presence there, and Jesus spoke about heaven, but he actually spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. If you go through the, the New Testament Gospels, you'll find at least 20 or more times where Jesus is referring to hell. He spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Uh, Dot read earlier for us, for us from Luke 16, which is the rich man in Lazarus. And here is one of Jesus' teaching, as it were, giving us some insight into this place called hell, into this place of everlasting torment and suffering. What does Jesus do when he's actually relaying this uh, true story here? Uh, it's a real and literal place. It's not some figment of Jesus' imagination made up on the spot. Jesus is referring to this place as a real and literal place, something that he has created. In that passage as well, you'll see it mentioned not once, not twice, not three times, but four times it's mentioned that this place is a place of torment. This place is a place of suffering. This place is a place of incredibly deep pain. What does the rich man do when he's in this place? He cries out and says, Abraham, can you please get Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and just bring a drop and put it on my tongue? Now, I don't know whether this is you know, a, a heat-related thing and he's passed a thirst. You know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But the important thing to see there is this. For whatever's happening there, there's some sort of dramatic torment or pain or something, some sort of anguish there that is actually causing this to happen to this guy while he's in this place. There's something really better torment and pain that's taking place there. Four times Jesus mentioned it because you're trying to communicate here what this place is. And there's this utter separation between us. Between those who are enjoying the presence of God and those who are in this pain and anguish. There's this great person fixed between us. Jesus often spoke about the eternal state of uh, being in hell as well. In a parable he told about the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. He mentions there that the sheep are on his left and the goats are on his right. And he said they will enter into eternal suffering, not just for a period or a season or a time, but eternally to go into suffering. And Revelation 2010, the verse prior to this passage that we're reading, says this. And the devil who have received them is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented, as I mentioned again, of pain and anguish and suffering, tormented day and night, forever and ever. Eternally. You can't comprehend eternally. But it just won't end. In fact, it'll probably get worse and worse and worse. So, so what do I mention these um, truths that it were of the difficulties of hell? What do we what do we bring this up? We do this because Jesus in the Bible make it very, very clear 
on the doctrine and the teaching of hell. It's a scripture. It's spoken about. Make no mistake about it. Hell is a real place. Its suffering is real and it's eternal. It will not be annihilated. Now, as much comfort that might bring to some people, any it will take place, it's only a false comfort. We will not cease to exist. If we reject God, we will spend eternity in hell. As I said, this is where the, the struggles begin to set in. This is the difficulties where they begin to set in. Like, how do we, how do we think about it? Is God's justice this strict? Is it really, is it really going to be like this? Is this heavy-handed or is this over the top? It's it's hard for us to join these dots and connect because we might say, hey, I've lived a pretty good life. I've looked after my neighbours' things next door. I've been going on my holidays. I've been a really good bloke. Sure, I didn't go to church that much. But, you know, is that really important? Because I even believed it was there. Maybe I had to sort of ride up holiday my thoughts all the time, but I sort of thought about, thought about it when I went to a funeral when Easter and Christmas come around. Are you really? Are you really going to send me to hell to suffer forever? We can't connect that. We just think, that doesn't make sense. That's not right. You see, we struggle with God's justice because we're failing the world through our eyes. We're not actually seeing God's justice through the purity that God actually delivers his justice with. And that's where we begin to fall down and miss and get this whole disconnect here about that. Because if I were God, and if you were God, you probably wouldn't be that strict. We'd probably be more lenient, more tolerant. We'd probably let more people in. If we were God, if that was our place to be. And you see, deep down, we actually believe in justice as well. It's part of our um, humanity. It's part of what we are. We, we believe that justice is a good thing. It's really one of the, the foundations of who we are as human beings. When someone's unfairly treated and we see that take place and we, we cry out justice for that person. Now, when you see those current affair people and those common going around ripping off people, you just say, hey, we want to see justice. You can't live like that. Justice must be done. So we do believe in justice. We think that's, that's the right thing to do. But with our distorted view of God, we don't realise the justice that he views the world with and then the injustice we've actually committed before God ourselves as human beings. We don't get the clarity of that because we don't see God as we should see him. And what we don't see is when we sin against God or carry out an injustice towards him, we are carrying this out towards an infinite, good, holy and majestic God. And we don't see the level of what we're doing as a uh, uh, as an infinite injustice towards him. What we don't see is when we ignore God and build our lives on our own selfish agenda, that we are sinning against an infinite God of perfection. We don't see that. Let me try and illustrate that here. Think about the weight of these crimes. It's all one crime, but delivered in different contexts. See if we can understand from this. How would you treat someone who was breaking into your house? So if you were the judge, how would you treat someone? Someone broke into your house, and the person who owned the house got a baseball bat and said, whack, and hit the burger across the head and killed you. Think about that one. Think about this. What if someone, same thing, a burglar comes into a house, 
And this time there's a defenceless old lady in the house and the burglar goes and kills the defenceless old lady. Think about that crime. Think about this one. How would you treat someone else who again went and murdered a defenceless old lady and they were totally um, uh, not sorry for whatsoever and then you discover that the little old lady, the defenceless lady that they've killed happens to be the mother of that murderer? Three different crimes. Sorry, one crime, three different contexts. What do you think would deserve the higher justice or the higher penalty out of that? If you were thinking about that, you would say, hey, surely the worst crime of those three will be the bloke who's gone and murdered his mother. You might think, oh, well, the first one was self-defence, the second one, that's pretty bad, but hang on. The third one, he's gone and murdered his mother, the one who's actually nurtured for him and cared for him and raised him up. If, if there's any sort of abhorrence to that sort of crime or sort of that, something that raises our blood or boils our blood, it would be the last one, isn't it? And as we think about that, this is what we're going to see when it comes to God. When we reject Him and His offer of salvation to us through Jesus Christ, it's like murdering your mother, except infinitely worse. Infinitely worse. It's like the perfect, majestic, holy God holds out to us the offer of salvation through His Son. He holds that. It's just, here it is. This is what I've given to you so you can be rescued. And we say, no, don't worry. I'll just live off on my terms. Don't worry about religion. Don't worry. You sent your son Jesus. He's going to die on the cross. Not interested. We're actually offending an infinitely holy and majestic God who offers out his one and only son for us. And when that happens, we actually lose sight of the seriousness of what we've just done. We just think we've said no. But we don't understand that we've infinitely sinned against an infinite God. And when we sin against an infinite God, we surely deserve an infinite punishment. You see, this is why we struggle with hell. This is why we struggle with the justice of God. We don't see that infinite offence. We just think it's what. But we don't see the greatness of the God that we actually have sinned against in that way. Now, nothing about hell is this. Hell isn't a place of correction or reforming behaviour. Nobody will be corrected in hell. and Nobody will be reformed in their behaviour in hell. People who go to hell will continue to reject God for eternity. I had a guy that I was uh, witnessing to about 35 years ago. He used to drive the truck into the canyon delivering the fruit. And there was a guy who said, uh, what's the time for? And I was talking to him one day about hell. And I said, hey, do you realise, hey, Robbie, you're going to stand before God one day and he's going to say, Robbie, what did you do about my son? And Robbie's going to say, oh, nothing. And he's like, okay. He's going to say, Robbie, depart from me. You, you um, are rejected and go to hell. And the young, my friend's answer was to that. I'm going to tell him I'm not going. <laughs> yeah, well, you can try that, Robbie. I'm not sure you're in a position of control or power or authority there, but that's a picture of the human heart. Even when they've already rejected God all their time, I'm not going. 
But that shows you that's, that's the steepness of our sin. Even in hell, we'll still be rejecting God. So it will be an infinite punishment in that sense. So, how does a God of love send people to hell? How does a God of love send people to hell? God just doesn't send people to hell. He sends people to hell who are deserving of hell and who in truth don't want to be with God for who he is. God just doesn't send people to hell. He sends people to hell who are deserving of hell and who in truth don't want to be with him. You see, God's justice is a good thing. It's a really good thing. How could any judge just simply let off an unremorseful murder of his mother? If that ever took place, we would cry injustice. So when God carries out his justice, we have to see it as good and as right. Because God is perfect in all that he does. Now, having a conversation with somebody and the Christian hell comes up like that, it's going to take quite a while to sort of articulate something like that out or communicate something about and you'll need to exercise a whole lot of sensitivity. But eventually we are going to have to try and communicate them our, our picture of who God is is faulty. That's where we get this view wrong. And our picture of what we do against God is faulty, is wrong. It takes a while to get to that, but you'll need to be patient and sensitive to try and help people see that actually hell is a good thing. Hell is the place where God exercises his justice and it is right. But certainly we don't want to leave them in that position. We don't want to leave them sort of, ah, oh, okay, what next? We actually want to lead them to the point of, okay, what has God done about hell? He's created this place for all those who reject him and don't love him and don't serve him as their God. What do we do about it? What do we do about this place called hell? This is really important because if we were the judge of the world, we would only send the really bad people to hell. Rapists or murderous dictators or child killers. We'd be very choosy about hell. Those who do lesser crimes, no, we probably wouldn't let them in. But what we do need to see is that God has done something incredibly mind-blowing when it comes to hell. Beyond our comprehension. What we need to see is God is far more exclusive and tolerant about hell than we'll ever imagine or that we would ever deserve. God is far more exclusive and tolerant about hell than we ever imagined or that we should ever deserve. Now maybe you'll hear for the first time in exchange. Maybe this is the first time we've actually heard something spoken about in hell. Maybe lots of churches don't want to talk about this issue of, this issue of hell because it will repel people away. But we love to talk about all scriptures here in this city. And maybe you're feeling the weight of this to some extent. I'm thinking, well, maybe I'm destined for hell because I have to live God for God the way I should. Well, we are glad you're here. We love to have visitors here with us in exchange. We want to tell you right now what God has done through Jesus Christ to deal with hell in our lives. Go back to the text there in verse 12 and you'll see there right in the middle, you'll see this. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. That's a great book. That's a bestseller, okay? That's, that's a book where you want to be in. What is this? This is the opening of the gospel. This is the good news here in this passage that we looked at, uh, which is talking a lot about final judgment. 
Right in the middle there, there's this book of life. Book of life. This is the book of life where all those have their names recorded in uh, will be given eternal life and not eternal punishment. This is the book that you want your name in. Now, how is this made possible? That when we've sinned so greatly against an infinite God, an infinite goodness of God, how is this possible that we could possibly get our name in this book? What's made this possible? Here's what God has done. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to this world to rescue and save broken, sinful, fallen humanity. All of us who deserve hell. Jesus became one of us. The very creation he created, he became one of. He became a representative of us. And at the cross, Jesus took upon himself all of our brokenness, all of our sinfulness, all of our injustice towards God. What did Jesus do? Jesus suffered by absorbing all of the justice of God in our place. What we deserved, Jesus took upon himself. What did Jesus do? Jesus experienced hell. He experienced this utter separation to be cut off, as it were, from the goodness of God. Jesus was separated from God in such a way to suffer the anguish, as it were, being torn apart inwardly in this separation from this unique relationship that he had with the Father for all of eternity. He suffers this separation and he suffers this justice being poured upon him at this time. That's another picture of hell. It's like we're disintegrating on the inside, but we never actually disintegrate. We're in this state of breaking down, but we never do fully break down. And as it were, Jesus Christ from the cross, these uh, glorious words for our behalf. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's Jesus entering into there? The suffering of hell. The suffering of God's justice is being poured upon the person of Jesus Christ. He's experiencing the unimaginable anguish on our behalf. And if you think about that, this is what's happening. Jesus has gone to hell for us so that we would never have to go to hell ourselves. Jesus has gone to hell for us so that we would never have to go to hell ourselves. Jesus has provided for us a way to be completely forgiven by our holy God for all of the injustice we've carried out against him. Jesus' death has made that possible so that through faith in Jesus now and submission to his lordship, God gladly calls us his own. And we don't have to suffer now. We won't suffer in hell. So here's the picture. So whether you're a mass murderer and a rapist, or whether you're a person who's lived your entire life without God in the centre, you can have your name in that book. Your name can be recorded in the book of life to not receive eternal punishment, but to receive eternal life. All because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. What does this show us about God? If you think about that. He's more inclusive and loving than we could ever imagine. We might start off the conversation by saying, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? But when we understand what Jesus has done about hell, 
we actually can turn that right around and say, no, 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 he's actually more inclusive and loving than we could ever imagine. Because this is what God does. If a murderer is in the last hour of life, and he confesses that he's done all this injustice towards God for his whole life, and he cries out for forgiveness with a humble heart, God receives him, and he doesn't go to hell. Now, that was us in the judge in that place. We said, too late, Sally. You should have thought about this years ago. But this just shows the inclusiveness of God and the love of God for what he's done about hell. We will never let that happen. But this is what God does because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has achieved for us. We're thinking, how could anybody pardon like that? God can and God does. And God has done that. So what does hell mean? It's really difficult subject. It's really grating thought or this really hard thing to compute for us. What does hell mean? Hell means that God is supremely just, perfectly just. Hell means that God is supremely good and perfectly good in exercising his justice. A God of justice will make all things right. And that's good. It's really good. Because what happens to these inhumane dictators that we've known about through the pages of history who've carried out all sorts of atrocities and murdering and mayhem people left, right and centre and they get away with it. The whole of their life is there actually in this country and they're never ever prosecuted. What happens to them? Well, they met God's justice. And they will then give an answer for all that they've ever done. Because everything they have done has been recorded in the books. God's justice is a good thing. Nothing escapes us. What about somebody's raped or abused? And it's never, ever been uh, uh, captured by the police. And the perpetrator's never been sorry. And what happens to that person? And they just go on living their lives. It's the same thing with the detail. Eventually they will meet God's justice and they will get what they deserve. So God's justice is a good thing. Now as we close this out, are we wishing hell upon anybody? Never. No way. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking like Paul. He says, Paul says, Therefore knowing the terrors of the Lord, do I seek to persuade men. But I've got family members who are not Christians. I've got family members at this point in time, should they die without trusting in Christ, they'll be like that rich man in Hades. But I'm not trying to convince them of the gospel by the terrors of hell, but I'm allowing the terrors of hell to be something that I don't want my family members to experience. I shared with our parenting course on Tuesday night. I said, no... There's only one thing you can take to heaven with you. You can't take your car, can't take your boat, you can't take your house, can't take your clothes. There's only one thing you can take to heaven with you. It's kids. It's family. I'm allowed to do this. I don't want anybody to experience this. I want to be informed about it. And I actually want to be able to carefully articulate it with other people should that question arise. And then I want to pray that God will open their eyes up to see what God has done about them through His precious Son, Jesus Christ, and rescuing and saving us. 
So today we thank God for his justice. It is a really, really good thing. We thank God that he's opened our eyes up for those who trust in Christ to see that his justice has been poured on Jesus. And then we pray that God will give us opportunities to be able to share that same life of hope for others. Father, thank you. Thank you this morning that we can come and uh, Lord, look at this sobering passage of Scripture. God, again, I thank you today uh, that you are gracious to us. to show us this. Now, Lord, I pray, please, please help us today, Lord, to let this passage set us uh, into the right amount of weight. That today, Lord, you would help us to look at our family, our friends, our neighbours, wherever they may be, Lord, and it's a picture of grasp here that what their existence will be like outside of grasp. Lord, may that drive us to our knees to pray, to pray. God, to pray that people's eyes would be opened up to the beauty and the wonder of Christ who came and took hell upon himself so that we would never, ever have to experience it. I pray, Lord, give us the opportunity to actually articulate this or communicate this or speak this out. Or maybe for those who are sitting here today and they're saying, that's me. That's me. I'm not trusting Christ. I'm not living for him. And that is my destination. God, I pray. Grant them now the ability to believe. Grant them now the ability to see a dying, bleeding Saviour who's absorbing hell on their behalf. Grant them to see, Lord, that not only did Jesus say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the same Jesus says, It is finished. Hell has been absorbed. God's justice has been declared. And you'll just put your trust in me and make me your Lord. You'll receive forgiveness for every sin. Holy Spirit, please right now. Open up eyes and open up ears to see and to hear that. Father, we ask that now. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, with us just in one song to close. Um, I was hoping at the front if anybody would uh, like some prayer or a bit of discussion at this talk, I'd be very happy to.